Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher in for my colleague Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Let's take a look and see how U.S. stock futures are doing right now. Slightly higher, actually, ahead of uh, the Federal Reserve's decision that we're expecting later today. Central Bank is expected to raise interest rates by at least 75 basis points. For the third time in a row, Fed Chair Jerome Powell will deliver his remarks uh, roughly around 2 o'clock local time here. All eyes on that. Asian markets closed in the red. Tokyo and Hong Kong down more than 1%. Here in New York, President Joe Biden is set to speak at the UN General Assembly in about 90 minutes from now. But all of this threatens to be overshadowed by the threatening language from Russia's President Vladimir Putin, as another 300,000 Russian reservists are being called up to fight in Ukraine. It is the biggest escalation of aggression from Moscow to date. This week, Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine announced referendums on formally joining Russia, votes that have been dismissed in the West as shams. In a speech to the nation, littered with false claims, by the way, Mr. Putin spoke about nuclear weapons in stark terms. This is not a bluff. The citizens of Russia can be sure that the territorial integrity of our homeland, our independence and freedom will be ensured. And those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the prevailing winds can turn in their direction. President Putin's address comes as Russian troops retreat from occupied territory. Ben Wiedemann is in Kharkiv in the northeastern part of Ukraine. So, so Ben, just walk us through what has been the Ukrainian reaction to Putin's speech. Kyiv's mayor basically saying that Putin has launched the process that will bury him in his country. Yes, by and large, the Ukrainian reaction has been dismissive, despite some of the alarming parts of uh, what we heard uh, President Putin say. Uh, We're talking about, uh, at least we heard the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, uh, talking about deploying 300,000 troops. Now, this is going to take a bit of time to train, to equip, and then to actually send them in the direction of Ukraine. So the threat is not immediate, but it certainly changes the tone. But as I said, the Ukrainians by and large have have considered it almost a joke, uh, what the president said, uh, and have been largely dismissive. We shall see if that attitude continues as this actually begins to come into effect on the ground. Zane? So it's obvious that Putin you know, has failed in his uh, initial objectives when it comes to Ukraine. So that's why he's escalating. Um, how does Ukraine respond militarily to this partial mobilization? Well, first of all, as I said, the, mo- the mobilization and uh, the actual arrival of fresh troops on the ground in Ukraine is going to take months. Uh, so, so how does it react? Well, it's going to have to continue to 
request from its Western backers more weapons, more sophisticated weapons, and that's what they've been uh, doing all along. Uh, but uh, you know, keep in mind, Zane, that winter is coming. Once the ground freezes and temperatures really drop, uh, neither side is really going to be in a position to make dramatic uh, moves. Now, the Russians in other parts of Ukraine, as opposed to the Kharkiv region, where they really have lost a lot of ground, are fairly well dug in, particularly in the Kherson area, in the southern part of the country, where Ukraine has been pursuing a counteroffensive, gaining some ground, but nothing uh, compared to what has been seen here in the, in, in the Kharkiv uh, region. So really, it's a, it's a waiting game, really. If the Ukrainians can gain more territory before winter really hits, then that will establish new lines that will probably be the next battle lines when these uh, new troops, if and when they are deployed, hit the ground. Zane. All right. Ben Wiedemann, live for us there. Thank you so much. I want to turn now to senior international correspondent Matthew Chance. Uh, Matthew, so Vladimir Putin described a partial mobilization, not a full one. Just explain to us in detail what that means in practical terms and also what's been the reaction within Russia to his speech. Well, I mean, the partial mobilisation is a kind of halfway house. He hasn't gone for a full-on, full-on conscription of every adult male in the country. But he says that it's limited at the moment to people who've served in the military and have stayed on the reserves, people who have special skills certified by the military that could be of use to the special military operation. And his defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, um, clarified in remarks afterwards that that was going to amount to about 300,000 people. So that's a substantial uh, number of, number of uh, sort of fighting age males in Russia. Um, and it will do enormous you know, things in terms of bolstering the lack of manpower that the Russians have been suffering with over the past couple of months to try and replace the forces that have been eroded or killed, I suppose is the correct term, in the, uh, in, in the fighting so far. It's not going to do much to address the shortfall of weapons and ammunition, which has also been uh, widely reported. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the impact uh, inside Russia of the partial mobilisation, well, there's some evidence that it may start to actually mobilise support you know, again, opposition to the war. Um, in fact, there have already been sort of instances of a very small protest scattered around the country. Um, some people have spoken out on social media saying, look, you know, I can understand why people wouldn't want to be called up. They've got wives and families uh, and children and who'd want to leave them uh, for the potential uncertainties of the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that that touches on, you know, one of the big problems for Vladimir Putin. This is going to be deeply unpopular. So long as the images or this idea of the special military operations stayed on the screens of people in Russia and didn't affect their daily lives, they're prepared to kind of go along with it and support it. But as soon as it's brought back home to them in this very real way, they can actually see people who don't want to go to war being sent to the, to the war zone. I think it could have you know, serious blowback for the Kremlin and for Vladimir Putin specifically. No, it's a big wake up call for people within Russia, as you mentioned, many people who don't want to go to war. Um, this idea of partial mobilization, though, what does it tell us about the failure of Putin's strategies so far when it comes to this war? I mean, it hasn't exactly panned out how he was hoping it would. No, it, it hasn't. Um, I mean, back in February 24th, when this whole thing began, I mean, I think the expectation was that, you know, this was going to be over in a couple of days or a couple of weeks and that the, uh, the Ukrainian state was going to basically capitulate, that the government was going to 
be gone. There was going to be a pro-government, pro-Putin, pro-Kremlin puppet regime installed in Kiev. That hasn't happened at all. It's been a remarkable uh, story of resistance um, by the by the Ukrainian side. Of course, backed very you know heavily with weapons from the United States and other other Western countries that have taken a massive and unexpected toll on the Russian military. If if they went in to this thinking it was going to be a, a sort of walk in the park, they've had that um, that that view very much changed by the, the high levels of casualties uh, the, and, and the lack of progress they've made in terms of their, their military aims over the past seven months. Zane. Right. Matthew Chance, uh, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right. U.S. President Joe Biden set to address the U.N. General Assembly in just over an hour from now. He's expected to urge world leaders to stand firm with Ukraine in resisting Russia's invasion. Richard Roth joins us live now. So, Richard, especially in light of Putin's partial mobilization comments, I mean, there's obviously several foreign policy priorities for President Joe Biden, but the Ukraine war is largely going to be front and center of his speech. Yeah, certainly after the secretary general warned the countries yesterday of a winter of discontent, there's a whole host of problems that U.S. President Biden can certainly confront. And Putin's announcement of a partial mobilization in Ukraine will give him further ammunition to condemn Russia for threatening the, in effect, the very existence, really, the foundation of the United Nations. The U.N. was set up, really, to stop countries from attacking others following World War II. Uh, the uh, Ukraine president will speak by uh, video transmission later today. The General Assembly had to vote overriding Russian objections for that to be accomplished. Within this hour, the president of Iran, Mr. Raisi, will also address the delegates. So a big day here at the U.N. with President Joe Biden speaking seventh in the order this morning. I estimate that to be at least two and a half hours away. And in terms of Zelensky speaking, as you mentioned, he's supposed to give a virtual address. He's supposed to speak remotely. What sort of uh, international appeal, especially when it comes to weapons and military equipment, do we expect him to make given Russia's uh, partial mobilization announcement? Well, it almost seems in the last seven months that President Zelensky has spoken to every group except Boy Scouts Troop 240 in Tulsa. Uh, but he's been making the case and he's going to, again, call on the nations of the world to come to Ukraine's aid. Weapons, 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 money, 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 as they fight off the Russians. There's no doubt about it, as we see countries starting to come in, uh, the U.N. exit and entrance uh, here at the General Assembly. All right, Richard Roth, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, U.S. investors are on edge waiting for the Federal Reserve's decision on interest rates in just a few hours. It is widely expected that policymakers will hike rates by 75 basis points. This is the third big increase in a row and the fifth rate hike this year. The Federal Reserve, of course, is tasked with using its tools to help get a handle on decades-high uh, inflation. Let's bring in my friend, uh, Rahel Solomon, who joins us live now from probably next door. <laughs> I think you're probably next door, Rahel. Um, so... This is not, not so much about what the Fed uh, says or does, rather, when it comes to how much they raise inflation or raise interest rates by. This is much more about what they say about the lay of the land, what they say about the state of the U.S. economy. 
Totally. Zhang, good to be with you as always. Yeah, also about the economic projections to your point. Where do they see unemployment going by the end of this year or next year? Uh, where do they see inflation going by the end of this year? But this is the fifth meeting this year, or this, this was the, the fifth rate hike this year, I should say. But this is the first time we're actually getting a Federal Reserve meeting, Zane, since July. So economists have been waiting for this. Market watchers have been waiting for this. Certainly financial journalists have been talking about this all year long. And this is sort of where we're coming from, right? I mean, March, we started with very gradual, just 25 basis points or one quarter of a percent. And we have grown ever since then. If, in fact, we do see another rate rise of three quarters of a percent or 75 basis points, well, Zane, supporters of this more aggressive approach would say this is the Federal Reserve showing that not only does it have the tools to fight inflation in terms of a higher interest rates, but it has the resolve to fight inflation in terms of actually committing to those higher interest rate hikes. I want to show you, however, where we're coming from, because although this would be the fifth rate hike of this year, we're coming from practically zero. So right now we're at about two and a half percent. If we see this rate hike that we expect, we'll be closer to three and a quarter percent. Today's announcement, Zane, perhaps the most pivotal this week, but it is an incredibly active week for central banks. I mean, between today and tomorrow, it's not just here in the U.S. with the Federal Reserve. We're also going to hear from central bankers in Brazil. We're going to hear from uh, Indonesia, Switzerland, South Africa, and the Bank of England. And just to take a step back, the last time, Zane, that we have seen consecutive rate hikes of this magnitude, you'd have to go back about 40 years, more than 40 years to the 1980s. And you could argue that some people watching this right now weren't even born then. Perhaps you weren't even born then, Zane. <laughs> I certainly wasn't. <laughs> Historic time. I was born in the sure. very early part of the 1980s. But thank you for aging me, Rahel. Uh, you you um, don't you don't look a day <laughs> over the 1990s for sure. Um, so one of the biggest fears for a lot of people is the idea of recession. Some Americans yeah. think that the U.S. is actually already in recession when it comes to mood in this country. What are the sort of key economic indicators that um, we're looking for to sort of indicate whether or not this country is headed in that direction? Yeah. Well, it's a great point, right? Because in terms of sentiment, people certainly feel that way, right? They feel pretty crummy about the economy. I would argue that's probably because of the uh, outsized impact of inflation with consumer inflation right now at 8.3%. But if we're talking about a technical definition of a recession, well, then we're looking at things uh, like the labor market, which is still strong. We're at 3.7% unemployment, which uh, did tick higher last month, but is still low. We're still seeing consumer spend. That is slowing, but they are still spending. Business and investment is starting to slow. So uh, we haven't seen it quite yet in the data. You could argue we have seen two quarters of negative GDP, although that could be revised. So unlikely that this period right now will be technically called a recession from the group, the, the business cycle dating committee at the NBER. But in terms of how Americans are feeling, you're absolutely right, Zane. People feel because of inflation for sure that things are pretty crummy right now, that we are in fact in a recession, whether or not we are or not. Yeah, people not feeling so good about uh, the rising cost of living. All right, Rahel Solomon, life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, in Iran, at least five people have been killed by security forces, according to an independent monitoring group. It says the violence happened during protests over the death of a woman in police custody. 22-year-old Masa Amini had been arrested by Iran's morality police last week, accused of breaking strict hijab laws. Her death has also led to protests on a level not seen in years. Some women publicly burning their headscarves. Iran is promising a thorough investigation into Amini's death. The country's president is set to speak at the UN any moment now. He's not expected 
to address the current unrest. Uh, these are live pictures from the UN of uh, Nigeria's President Mohamedou Bahari speaking, but we are expecting Iran's president to speak next. Jamana Karadze is following the story from Istanbul. So people are demanding an investigation into Miss Amini's death. Um, they want also the dismantling of the morality police as well. How likely is there to be any accountability here at all, Jamana? You know, Zane, the protest started uh, late last week over the death of Masa Amini while in the custody of the uh, morality police. The circumstances surrounding her death still being disputed between the government and uh, her family and um, uh, human rights activists. But what we are seeing right now, Zane, is that these protests have snowballed into much more than that. It did spark these protests, but now you've got young men and women, thousands on the streets across the country in dozens of cities from the uh, Kurdish northwestern part of the country to the capital Tehran to even more conservative uh, cities like Mashhad. You have these remarkable, really incredible images that are being described by Iran experts as unprecedented, something we have never seen on this scale before, where you have women on the street defying the compulsory headscarf uh, regulations in the country, taking off their headscarves, burning them, calling uh, for freedoms and uh, chanting down with the dictator. This is something we have not seen on this scale uh, before. And you've got the government uh, cracking down on these protests by all accounts. We've heard from human rights activists, uh, eyewitnesses on the ground that they have uh, used everything from water cannons to live bullets, according to one human rights organization, as you mentioned, at least five uh, protesters killed. But that has not stopped these protesters. Even today, we're seeing more and more uh, reports, more images of demonstrations taking place. You really have a generation now, Zane, that is saying enough is enough to decades of repression. They are calling into question the religious authority in the country. They are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, questioning the very existence of the morality police and you know we've spoken to Iranian activists outside the country who are watching this and they feel that this could be the beginning of something in the country they're hanging on to this hope that this could be um, a new chapter for Iran perhaps some change that might be coming, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. You know, we've had reports from uh, NetBlocks that monitors internet activity in the country, and they say that they have documented uh, restrictions on the internet over the past few days. And we had the Minister of Communications in Iran saying that's not true, that hasn't happened, but he does say that because of the security situation in the country, because of the debates that are ongoing in the country, the security authorities, the security apparatus might turn to uh, restricting the Internet, perhaps an ominous sign of what is to come. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens in the coming uh, hours and days. But certainly, Zane, this has really not stopped these thousands of protesters that have taken to the streets across the country. Yeah, and as you point out, Miss Samini's death was the spark, but it has ignited into something so much more. People calling into question the very existence of the morality police, their heavy-handedness, and the treatment of women overall. Jemana uh, Kalachi, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, straight ahead. Um, a plan to fight climate change from a bastion of heavy industry. I speak to the chairman of Fortescue Metal about 
investing billions to cut out fossil fuels. That's next. Climate change and sustainability are still major topics at this year's United Nations General Assembly in New York. And delegates are hearing from Australian iron ore company Fortescue Metals Group, which says it will decarbonize its iron ore operations by 2030, investing $6.2 billion in green energy technology. The company says a majority of the money will be spent before between rather 2024 and 2028. Fortescue's chairman, Andrew Forrest, says the energy landscape has seen dramatic changes over the past two years and change has accelerated since Russia invaded Ukraine. Joining me live now is Andrew Forrest, founder and chairman of Fortescue Metals Group. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. So you've announced this $6.2 billion plan to essentially eliminate fossil fuels, uh, carbon emissions from your operations by the end of the decade. I mean, given that your company relies at the moment so heavily on diesel and gas, just explain to us how you plan on doing that. Yeah, thank you, Zane. Um, great opportunity to do that. Thank you. What I did first is to went to all my major operators, all these huge plants, which, as you've correctly observed, burn a massive amount of diesel and gas, and said, look, in 2026, I'm coming up there. I'm literally going to switch off the gas supplies, switch off the oil levers. And if you don't have answers to how we're going to have another form of energy, which is not going to destroy the world, then I'm going to leave those switches off. And um, And... They loved it. They loved the challenge uh, and they've come back with these extraordinary ideas, which is not breaking technology. It's nothing out of this world. It's just great common sense. And what it proves using wind and solar, gravitational energy, pumped hydro, all of these things already exist. Our huge heavy emitting company can go fully post the fossil fuel era. And if we can, so can everyone else. I mean, this is hugely ambitious. Taking metal out of the ground obviously requires generally a lot of energy. What you're promising is so bold. And to do this by the end of the decade um, is a lofty promise, to say the least. Are you confident? Are you truly confident, Andrew, that this can be done by that time frame? Zane, I'm truly confident. I'm confident that time frame, I think, will probably beat it in. We've asked the United Nations uh, to come and audit us so that step by step they can track how we're decarbonizing first our trains, then our trucks, then our fixed plant all over our terrestrial operations. We will go fully post fossil fuel. Yes, we have to do things differently, but business as usual, Zane, is over. Unless you want to ignore the science, unless you don't care about the world, Business as usual is over. We all have to change. Fortescue stepping up of one of Australia's largest companies, one of the world's largest mining companies, and saying we can go post-fossil fuel and we can do it comfortably within this decade. So you'll be relying on wind energy, solar energy, battery storage, hydrogen. Some people are sceptical about the use of hydrogen in this particular way. Um, Elon Musk, (laughs) to name one such example. What do you say to the sceptics here? Oh, look, I've had sceptics all my life, and that's how we've built Australia's top performing company by 200% over the last 20 years. So, uh, look, you're not going to do something new doing it the same way. To the critics of green hydrogen, look, if you're locked into batteries, 
that's a commercial model. I'd say be technology agnostic. You've got no reason to be not technology agnostic. We all know that batteries are only as good as the coal or fossil fuel you put into the battery. So it's kind of pretending you're going green. Only green hydrogen will send you green. Only solar and wind, gravitational energy, and of course, things like pumped hydro, that's what sends you green. And we're just tapping into technologies which we already have. We did buy Williams Advanced Engineering. We think probably the most advanced prototype battery manufacturer in the world. And we immediately set them the task from not winning Formula E races around the world, but winning the gravitational energy race to make all our trains go pollution free. All our trucks go pollution free. Add hydrogen into that. You've got a terrifically efficient combination when that hydrogen is made from the freedom of the sun, the freedom of the wind. And that's where the world has to go. We have so much energy and it's complete rubbish that we can't switch. Fortescue's proving we can. It's interesting because you believe that um, decarbonisation is actually going to benefit you quite significantly financially. Um, $800 million or so a year. Um, just walk us through that and explain how you plan to reinvest that money each year. Yeah, look, thank you. I think we're going to reward our shareholders, reward our stakeholders. We're going to pay more tax because we're going to make a lot more profits. Um, but over, this is how the numbers work. And I, I just want to reach out to all my temperamental analysts who are worrying about that at $6.2 billion. What a lot of capital. Will it hurt the dividend? Will it do this? Can I just say it's a fabulous investment? We are here to run this company to make fabulous investments for you. We also think that going green, going beyond fossil fuel is mandatory, but you can do it very profitably. Let me just quickly explain. $6.2 billion we make as a one-off investment. We then get at least $820 million US dollars back each year. That's a 14% rate of return on its own. That's stepping well beyond Warren Buffett's miracle of 9%. Then if you take into account that the fact we've started saving money going green last year. We saved $70 million. This year, we'll save double that. Next year, double, double, double. We'll save $3 billion between now and the end of this decade when we're spending the money to go green. Now, you take that $3 billion off the $6.2 billion, you've still got savings every year forever of $820 million, Zane. That's now internal rate of return to all financial analysts. Please listen of 25%. Now, anyone's going to say that's a bad investment? Come and talk to me. All right. Andrew Forrest, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank you, you joining us. All right. Uh, it looks as though, let's take a look now. It looks as though the president of Iran, Raisi, is speaking now at the UN. All eyes on that country for two particular reasons. Firstly, the protests happening right now in Iran over the death of a young woman who was in the custody of the morality police. Also, the various sticking points when it comes to the Iran nuclear deal. Our producers are going to be monitoring what President Raisi says. We'll bring you uh, that information live as and when we have it. All right. Much more news after the short break. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening uh, slightly higher ahead of the federal decision on interest rates. The central bank is expected to raise its key rate by three quarters of a point again today. Meantime, defense stocks are in focus as Vladimir Putin escalates the Ukraine war by ordering hundreds of thousands of Russians 
to be drafted into the military. Let's get more now on how the markets are reacting ahead of the Fed's rate decision. Um, Mark Stewart joins us live now. Mark, good to have you with us. So is there a feeling that the worst may be still to come when it comes to U.S. stock market? Or is most of what's going to happen today when it comes to the interest rate hike already priced in here? Hi there, Zane. It's really good to see you. Uh, Yes, for the moment, the expected rate hike of three quarters of a percent is built into the markets. And that's perhaps why we're not seeing any kind of dramatic uh, dip or jolt, at least at this point in the day. But it is still very early in the trading day. And what the Fed chair will say later will certainly matter. Look, the prospect of higher interest rates, it's very difficult for us. The prospect that we could be facing higher credit card bills, auto loans, mortgage payments, That's hard for us to stomach. Perhaps later today, when this becomes official, businesses may express some concern because higher interest rates also mean a higher cost of operating on their end of things. And then I think also as the trading day progresses, we cannot ignore this heightened tension that we are seeing in Ukraine, in particular the energy sector. It was just a few days ago that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen expressed concern about higher gas prices, higher energy prices, depending on what Europe does next in relation to Russian oil exports. So there's a long list of things to watch for today, Zane. Of course, though, that key moment is when the Fed at least makes its public statement during the two o'clock hour. Yeah. And and most people are expecting a 75 basis point increase. But there are a handful of economists that think that the Fed could go as high as a four percentage point. Just walk us through that. Right. It's a small it's a small group that is saying that. But I heard from two economists over recent days who said that perhaps Something as dramatic as a full point, a full interest rate hike, full basis point hike, uh, would one point hike would would be that kind of jolt that perhaps the market needs. Um, yet another economist said to me, "There's no reason for shock and awe. Let's make it more of a gradual, more of a gradual climb, as we have seen so far." But in addition to just the numeric number that we get from the Fed. I think we're all very anxious, including Wall Street, about what the Fed chair will say. How does he view things currently? What is he concerned about in the future? I mean, so often Wall Street turns to companies and their earning reports, whether it be retail or transportation, to get a sense of how they are feeling. This is no different than with the Fed chair. All right, Mark Stewart, thank you so much for uh, giving us the lay of the land there. I just have to say we are very, very happy to have you here at CNN. I believe this was your first appearance on CNN for us. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Zane. All right, let's speak to somebody who knows exactly how the Federal Reserve thinks and operates. Robert Heller is a former governor of the Fed. He joins us live now. Robert, thank you so much for being with us. So how much pain is the Federal Reserve willing to inflict on the U.S. economy in order to get inflation down to where it needs to be? That's an excellent question. In the past, the Federal Reserve has shied away from inflicting pain, and that is the problem at the present time, because the Fed is way behind the curve. We are having still a stimulative monetary policy. If you look at it in low interest rates, relatively low interest rates, compared to the very high inflation that we have at the present time. So the Fed has a long way to go until they really will get inflation under control. And if inflation isn't brought down quickly enough, what are the economic consequences of that? 
Well, a lot of consequences. First of all, we certainly don't want to have a wage price spiral uh, instigated in the United States. That will always result eventually in economic turmoil. It will result in a big recession, a much bigger recession than you would get if you would have taken the steps early, uh, tightening interest rates early in the game. So the end game will be a lot worse. Think about countries like uh, Argentina, uh, Greece in the past, uh, Uruguay. They all had enormous inflations and uh, it never ends well. Most people right now are expecting um, that the Fed is going to raise interest rates by 75 basis points today. Do you think that they should go higher than that, given how stubborn inflation has been? There are some people, it's a very small group of people, but there are some who believe that the Fed could and should go as high as a full point here. Well, I'm certainly in that camp that the Federal Reserve should raise rates a lot more. They should have done so in the past and they should do so in the future. Uh, whether they will do so is a different question. So I think they will only raise 75 basis points because they want to be cautious. They don't want to upset the markets. There's an election coming up uh, and you don't want to disturb uh, the economy too much. But the Fed really has to raise rates for quite a while to come more than they have done so in the past. The thing, though, is that this is less about the actual rate hike and more about Powell's comments, more about his assessment of how the U.S. economy is doing um, and the health of the U.S. economy. That is what markets are going to really be responding to here. Well, uh, they're waiting for the words of the chairman uh, to give them a bit more guidance. But uh, the Federal Reserve really should not be in the, in the business of providing guidance, of forecasting what they themselves will do. They should just do it. Under Volcker, that's what we did. Uh, we just did it. We let the market uh, deal with it. Uh, so you preparing the markets and forecasting what you're going to do in the future I don't think is a very fruitful exercise for the Federal Reserve. Interesting. I mean, here's the thing. We obviously know that there is a lag time between, you know, raising interest rates and bringing inflation down. But why has inflation in this particular instance been so stubborn, do you think? It was the last two years in, 19, uh, in 2020 and in 2021. We had 25 percent increases in the money supply each year. And that was an enormous monetary stimulus combined with the fiscal stimulus, which was uh, also uh, given to the economy. And as a result, we get the big inflation buildup with the normal lag of one year to 18 months. Uh, so that's what we're seeing at the present time. It's the result of the policy mistakes of the past that we have to live with at the present time. And we have to change course drastically. All right, Robert Heller, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, still to come here. After the break, President Biden's address to the UN threatens to be overshadowed by Russia's escalation on Ukraine. That's next.
Returning to our top story, a dramatic escalation by the Kremlin on Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is calling up an additional 300,000 reservists to fight beginning immediately. Russia has lost ground in Ukraine, its forces giving up some of the territory they claimed early in the war. Mr. Putin's speech, which was riddled, by the way, with false claims, contained an ominous pledge to use all means necessary to defend his country. Britain's foreign secretary says it's an admission that his invasion is failing. These are the actions of someone who is clearly not seeing the conflict in Ukraine go the way he had hoped. We knew, and we have been working with our allies, including, of course, the United States of America, that he had hoped to dominate Ukraine in a matter of days. We're now seeing months later, the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians back. And these are the actions of someone who knows this conflict is not going well. Mr. Putin's comments come against the backdrop, backdrop rather, of the UN General Assembly here in New York, where New York, rather, where the war on Ukraine will dominate. President Biden is preparing to give his address. The Iranian president is speaking now. Joining me live now is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton. Um, Colonel, I want to get your thoughts on this announcement, this partial mobilization announcement of 300,000 reservists um, that Vladimir Putin has called up to potentially fight. Well, Zane, I think, uh, you know, Putin in some ways didn't have a choice uh, because he had such a high attrition rate, such a high casualty rate uh, with the Russian forces that were arrayed against Ukraine uh, from the start of this invasion back in February of this year. Uh, so on the one hand, you can see that from a pure military standpoint, it was necessary for him to do something like this. On the other hand, though, uh, you know, this is a clear escalation of, uh, of the action as far as the Russians are concerned. And the impact on the Ukrainians uh, will probably be felt a bit later. Uh, the problem that Putin is going to have, though, I think with this is that he's not going to be able to employ these forces immediately. They will need training. They will need equipment. Uh, they will need training uh, in, the, in the, the specific weapon systems that they need. Uh, to use, and they will be, uh, you know, having to supply these troops with these new weapon systems. So it's going to be tough for the Russians to do this, uh, but there are a lot of threats in Putin's speech, and uh, those threats, of course, could go well beyond uh, just placing the res these reservists or some of these reservists on the front lines against Ukraine. Yeah, there were several ominous moments in that speech. You talked about training needed. You talked about supplying them with equipment, with weaponry, actually transferring them to the border with Ukraine. How long does all that take? It really depends on the specific weapon systems and where things are, uh, you know, in terms of geography. Uh, so it could take up to uh, a year in some cases to do some of this. I uh, certainly we're looking at uh, for most of these things to be moved into an area where they can be used uh, and the people to be moved along with the equipment, uh, you're probably talking at a minimum two to three months, more like six months before a lot of this can be brought to bear on the front lines. And of course, within six months, the dynamic of this war uh, could shift dramatically. How does Ukraine respond militarily to this announcement? 
I think the best way for them to respond is to keep up their momentum as much as they possibly can. Of course, they're reliant on the West, uh, in the NATO states, as well as uh, the United States, uh, to bring them all the munitions that they need, weapon systems that they need. Uh, they can certainly benefit, the Ukrainians can, from additional types of weapons, uh, such as potentially fixed-wing aircraft, uh, like fighter jets. Uh, you know, something like that would be a bit of a game-changer. So, uh, you know, in essence, coupling the tactics that they've been employing lately with new, more aggressive weapon systems, that could certainly help the Ukrainians maintain the momentum that they have and potentially allow them to continue to gain territory uh, as, as they've been doing in the last few weeks. Yeah, because they've had this sort of surging counteroffensive and they really need to keep that up. How hard is it to get an accurate picture of the number of casualties, the real number of casualties that Russia has sustained um, on the battlefield? It's really hard to do that, Zane. I mean, for one thing, we're dependent on uh, word from the Ukrainian military in terms of the number of uh, Russians that they've encountered, either as uh, killed in action, wounded in action, uh, prisoners of war, uh, those kinds of things. And when you look at uh, the Ukrainian estimates and some of the estimates from uh, Great Britain and other NATO countries, we're looking at somewhere around 50% of the forces that we believed were arrayed against against Ukraine in February, in late February, uh, that they have in one way or another uh, lost their combat effectiveness. That's a significantly high casualty rate, but it's very difficult to get accurate numbers because, of course, the Russians are being very silent about uh, their casualty rates. Uh, they've only sporadically released uh, some data on the on these casualties, and they certainly don't want to release more data because, of course, it could have a negative impact politically at home for them. Yeah, one thing's clear, though, when you hear Vladimir Putin talk about this partial mobilization, perhaps bringing 300,000 more reservists to come and fight, it is very clear that this war is not ending anytime soon, at least not on his watch. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here, uh, is the Pearl of the Orient losing some of its luster? How a major brain drain is impacting Hong Kong? A brain drain in Hong Kong is proving a major headache for the city as it reports its sharpest annual drop in population. COVID restrictions and the political situation are being blamed for the exodus. Chris Stout looks at how one of the world's biggest financial hubs is changing. American couples Sarah Churgan and Stephen Cody are fed up with the city. She's a vet, he's a banker, and after eight years in Hong Kong, they're packing up for a one-way trip back to the U.S., the biggest thing for us has been the, the change in how often we can see our families. Usually I got to see them anywhere between two and four times a year. Now we went two and a half years um, without seeing anybody. Sarah and Stephen joined over 100,000 other residents abandoning the Chinese territory this year, unable to endure life in a city that's become one of the most isolated in the world. Mask mandates remain in effect here. And as other countries live with COVID-19, people have fled Hong Kong's heavy-handed restrictions and they've been leaving in droves. 
Hong Kong is bleeding talent at a record pace. Over the last year, the financial hub long billed as Asia's world city has seen over 113,000 residents leave, including expatriates and non-permanent residents. It's the city's sharpest annual drop in population on record since 1961. Authorities attribute part of the decline to a natural decrease of reporting more deaths than births. Experts say Hong Kong's changing political landscape and strict zero COVID policy have prompted many to leave. We are witnessing a historic departure, the result of the social unrest and the social movement here in Hong Kong and then followed by COVID. The government has eased the hotel quarantine period from a peak of 21 days to three and plans to host the international rugby sevens and a global banking summit in November are seen as opportunities for Hong Kong to open up. But Beijing's political crackdown in the territory has also contributed to the population decline. An offer of citizenship by the UK has attracted at least 140,000 Hong Kongers to apply for the special British National Overseas or BNO visa. Including Gavin Mock, who moved to the UK last year with his wife and two daughters. A former stockbroker, he's now a delivery driver in Exeter who has no plans to return. I'm glad that I made the decision. Freedom of speech, uh, democracy, everything. Um, you can say whatever you like. Gavin misses the comforts of Hong Kong, but he relishes his freedom. In Hong Kong, the population is very volatile. I mean, very fluid. I think it can tilt one way or the other. It really depends on the development of Hong Kong or how the people perceive this place. 7.29 million people still call Hong Kong home, but not Sarah and Stephen, despite their many fond memories. In addition to COVID, there's been a lot of political changes. The city has changed a lot since we both came eight years ago, and some of that is not going to go back. Their boxes are sealed, plane tickets booked, even for the cats, Another family ready to leave the city they once loved. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Moments ago, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi addressed the UN General Assembly. And while he didn't directly address the protests happening in his country right now over the death of a woman in police custody, he called out the West for what he said is a double standard. The Islamic Republic of Iran rejects some of the double standards of some governments vis-à-vis -vis human rights and sees that as the most important factor which has rendered banal the topic of human rights in the eyes of many because this is something that is currently taking place, a discourse that is taking place in the Islamic Republic of Iran where we started speaking of and creating a dialogue about the death of tens of innocent women in a Western country. So until we have these double standards where attention is solely focused on one side and not all equally. And that is it for the show. I'm Zayn Asher. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.